On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. A pretty varied uh, selection of front page stories uh, in today's newspapers. Uh, we'll start with the Sunday Independent. Uh, revealed HSE was warned over unsafe gender clinic. Uh, senior doctors in the National Gender Service warned the HSE in 2019 that it would face a wave of patients who would regret medical gender reassignments due to the poor level of care given to Irish children by the Tavistock Clinic. Now, you might have heard about this clinic. This was the primary clinic operated by the NHS in Britain, which was dealing with uh, children who were uh, referrals over um, gender dysmorphia. But there's been some concerns raised about that that basically it's going to be shutting down uh, next year because of some concerns around the willingness that it had uh, in offering uh, gender transition services to people who weren't necessarily, um, you know, maybe it might not have been the most appropriate thing in their cases. Uh, Paul Moran, who is a consultant psychiatrist at the National Gender Services, which treats over 16s in Lockdownstown in Dublin uh, and his colleagues, they set out their concerns over Tavistock's unsafe Irish Children's Gender Clinic in writing and the number of meetings since 2019. The Tavistock Clinic has operated a satellite service in Crumlin Children's Hospital from 2014 until 2020. It was suspended during the pandemic and it is yet to return to operations. But it's still getting Irish patients referred to it despite plans to close it due to a recent damning report in the UK. And this report by Mark Tide today in the Sunday Independent finds that some concerns were raised about that uh, previously. There's also an opinion poll in today's Sunday Independent. The country is divided over Sabina Higgins' call for a negotiated settlement of the war in Ukraine, it finds. Ask whether the president's wife was right or wrong to make a public statement on the war. 50% said she was right, 34% said she was wrong, and 15% said they had no opinion. But a majority, 56%, said that it was wrong for Mrs Higgins to publish her statement in the form of a newspaper letter on the president's official Orson Ugderon website. Only a quarter, of, uh, just over a quarter of people, 27%, said that they had no difficulty with her doing so. 16% said that they had no opinion. However, and this is maybe the interesting thing, the poll also found that 48% of people believe that Ukraine should seek to negotiate an immediate truce with Russia, while 34% were opposed uh, to such a move and 18% were unsure. So although there might be a broad number of people who are in favour of Samina Higgins' general idea of the two governments sitting down to negotiate some sort of truce, Uh, there is still a majority of people who are perhaps unhappy with the manner in which her letter uh, was publicised. The front page of the Sunday Times today, TDs rage over rural ATMs as the Dolls is unused. While TDs have protested furiously about the threat to bank ATMs in rural towns, the cash machine in Leinster House has been removed due to a lack of use. An audit found that only €200 Euro was withdrawn in one four-week period last year. At the Houses of the Oireachtas Commission, the cross-party body that runs Leinster House, took the decision to dispense with the ATM after an analysis showed that each withdrawal of cash could cost it as much as €5.63 Euro due to the high charge levied by operators. The removal of the cash machine in May of this year prompted protests by TDs including Fine Gael's Bernard Durkin who wrote to the Count Corda saying that one of the main pillar banks should have to provide ATM services in Leinster House so that politicians wouldn't have to travel to an ATM outside the house with consequent safety issues and Durkin also voiced concerns about the scaling down of banking services throughout the country saying that politicians would be held responsible uh, whatever happened the way the, whatever way the banks were operating he said um, at the Oireachtas Finance Committee last month given the relationship between the banks and the Oireachtas over the past number of years if I were them I would make some efforts to restore the ATM machine in question uh, the piece does point out that there is an annual uh, contract price uh, operated by the, the people who operate uh, that ATM and that basically uh, withdrawals for some natural reasons and for some other societal reasons had gone down uh, so much in the last couple of years that it effectively would cost over €5 Euro for every cash withdrawal uh, be taken out from that ATM. 
Also on the front page of today's Sunday Times, uh, members of Ireland's LGBTQ community have criticised the slow rollout of the monkeypox vaccine uh, with 97 uh, cases confirmed to date and 10 people admitted to hospital. And also on the Sunday Times, Dylan Quirk, the 24-year-old Tipperary hurler who died on Friday during a club match in Thurles, has spoken two years ago about being diagnosed with myocarditis. Uh, Quirk received medical attention on the pitch at Semple Stadium after collapsing shortly before half-time during a senior championship game on Friday night. Full Ford was then taken to hospital uh, where he passed away. Quirk revealed that he had been diagnosed in 2019 with myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. And in an interview with the Pundit Arena sport website in 2020, Quirk said that he received the diagnosis after collapsing at home the previous year and he was told to stop any physical contact for three months. Effectively, it is a condition where the lining of the heart becomes swollen, it comes under stress, and it can often happen when the immune system is low. Um, That is the front page of the Sunday Times. Very quickly, the Business Post... Sinn Féin's PRSI proposal could double the current rates paid by businesses. Uh, Sinn Féin has proposed gradually increasing employers' PRSI to the European average in a move that could double the current rate of social contributions paid by businesses. The party would also implement a third income tax rate for those earning over €140,000 a year, increase capital gains tax, increase inheritance tax and replace property tax with a wealth tax. That was all part of the submission to the Commission on Taxation and Welfare set up by the government last year to overhaul Ireland's tax system. That final report is due very shortly. Um, and also on the front page of the Business Post, and this is this is not exactly a, a very nice story to be reading in this this kind of time of the year, uh, the state will have no option but to reduce electricity demand or face blackouts this winter because planned emergency power generators will not be in place in time. Uh, if you listen to this programme regularly, you'll hear me regularly read front pages from the Business Post where they've been raising some concern around energy supply and some tenders that have been issued for emergency power generators and uh, approval being given by the government for the state to buy basically more generators to try and keep make, make sure that supply keeps pace with demand. Um, it would seem that basically that some of those generators are now not going to materialise this summer and having identified a growing gap between power demand and supply... The CRU has been working to ensure that Ireland has adequate energy supply for the winter months, but it has failed to build the emergency generators in time for this winter. And a spokesman for the energy regulator has warned that margins will remain tight, it says. See what to make of that. Uh, Hopefully you'll still be able to operate your radio this coming winter. Uh, Finally, for an Irish Mail on Sunday. Influential ministers insist Taoiseach will lead Fianna Fáil into election and blast party rebels behind a soap opera split. The stage is set for a divisive Fianna Fáil leadership showdown, according to John Drennan, after three of the party's ministers publicly backed Micheál Martin to continue as party leader after the next general election. Agriculture Minister Charlie McConnellogue, Education Minister Norma Foley and influential junior minister Niall Collins, who described the recent party efforts to undermine the leader as a soap opera, have all declared to the Irish Mail on Sunday their support for Micheál Martin, who is due to rotate roles with Tónáiste Leo Varadkar in December. Uh, that is your little whistle-stop tour of what's on the front pages of this morning's papers. Um, with me in studio are two people who are probably also uh, equally nonplussed about the removal of the ATM from Leinster House. Uh, Philip Ryan, who is the group political editor at Independent.ie and the Independent Newspapers Group, and Christina Finn, who is political correspondent uh, with the journal.ie. Um, I, I actually don't know whether either of you are terribly exercised about the removal of the ATM. Yeah. I have to say I thought that actually that was out of service for quite a long time for 20, 2021. I'd passed by it going to other places I and am, noticed that machine I, turned off. Yeah, I actually am quite exercised about it. I was saying to Phil that I actually went to take um, some money out before the recess and there was just a gaping hole there in the wall. So I had asked one of the ushers what had happened and they said sure the TDs are up in arms about it being removed and, and now we have a front page about it so <laughs> um, yeah like I you think can't it, get cash back in the canteen no I never really tried yeah. yeah I don't know what the emergency money I needed at the time but uh, yeah I suppose it does speak to like the debate that's going on about 
the cashless society and, you know, the very bad move from mm. AIB to, uh, but you know. But as far as a bubble story goes, I think it kind of it is kind of remarkable that the TDs are raging over rural ATMs while, while the one in the Leinster House went yeah. unmo- unused for so long. And maybe, maybe the 200 is. euro is me yeah. that took it out. I'm not well, sure. In, in, in fairness, <laughs> actually, I didn't intend to go into the weeds in this story at all, but I, the, um, the four week period in which only 200 euro was withdrawn um, was January of last year, which of course was a time when the entire oh, country sure, was yeah. in level five lockdown and people were advised not to go to their workplaces. So it would be natural enough that there would be relatively little cash withdrawn mm. from it in that time when people were literally being told not to go to the building unless they had a vital reason to do so. This um, needs a commission of investigation. <laughs> if, if only there were enough retired judges around yeah. uh, to do it. I, I don't know where we're going to find any more. Um, the country being divided over the Sabina Higgins letter, uh, Philip Ryan, is, is part of the opinion poll which has been run by your paper today. Um, it's kind of an interesting nuance, isn't it? That, that a lot of people thought that um, her, her statement was correct and people thought that her stance was correct, but people still think that she was wrong to have it put on the website, even if it was on a section of the website, which is supposedly to mm. be delineated as being her section and not that of her husband. Yeah, look, it speaks to the popularity of not just the president, but his wife as well. Um, that the poll shows that 50% said she was right to make her statement. But then there's the 56% who said they were um, concerned about it going up on the DRS's official website where, mm. where it sat for a couple of days before being taken down. But at the same time, 63% are all for the president himself anyway, speaking mm. out on, on various issues. And there, there's a there's a very interesting piece by Shane Ross in the Sunday Independent as well, where he yeah, discusses there's, there's, there's Martin McAleese. So, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt mm. you. This is an interesting spread on page 21 of the Sunday mm. Independent because they have two columnists. It is the, the traditional you know, designed sort of head-to-head of whether it was right for anyone in the Oris to, to mm. get into such a thing. Um, Owen O'Malley is arguing that Sabina Higgins has a poor grasp of past conflicts and that she's basically conceding to a tyrant. And Shane Ross, as you're saying, uh, mm. is entirely in defence of, of the Higgins and the first couple. That's right. And especially he's using the example of Martin McAleese, who was obviously uh, Mary McAleese's husband. And, and he served in, or lived in the Oris with her for all those two terms that she served. And, and he brings up the, the work he did in the North and the, the efforts he made to, for peace and reconciliation up there, which also involved with him dealing directly with the, the types of the Ulster Unionists, Data and loyalist uh, paramilitaries who 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 would have been widely condemned and rightly so, but he he did this and there was never any um, comment or you know criticisms. And also he served in the 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 Oris where he would have or mm. in the Shannon rather where he would have yeah. made comments on various things. And again, no one questioned whether he was right or wrong to do yeah. so. But but being in the Shannon at least sort of gives you a mandate. And th- mm. this is kind of one of the interesting things about all of this is that do, do people care about? the role of a first spouse or a first lady or a first gentleman. They only care about it when that person is perceived as having put a foot wrong or said something unpopular, but that they actually have no problem with an activist first lady or first gentleman as long as they're doing something that public are broadly on board well, with. Well, this is it. And if you go onto the the president's website and, and the Sabina Higgins section, which is there, like there's a lot, there's a lot of wordy stuff. She's, she's very much into breastfeeding and promoting that. And she's big into yoga as well, which... Uh, well, if there's the first couple of votes spoken yeah. about the, the, the merits of yoga. Um, mm. the, one of the things that this does highlight for me, Christina, mm. is the fact that we've, we've never really kind of properly debated or had a, a real understanding of this idea of a first couple and, and having an American style 
other freelance campaigner who's sort of using the platform of the presidency to be able to highlight issues without necessarily having been given the mandate or the public authority to do it. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting when you heard a lot of the debates and vox pops and stuff around the country over the last week or so. People were just, you know, referring um, to Sabina as the first lady. And we just actually don't have that here. That's mm. it's not, as we said, a formal um, position. Um, but, I, you know, I do think that nobody wants people up in the arts just sitting there doing nothing you know what I mean um, It's I think it's right and proper that they'll mm. pick some issues that they want to highlight obviously this one is quite contentious um, uh, in terms of the reaction that it got for me I, I thought it was a bit of a, a storm in the teacup type of um, you know I didn't think it would probably not get as much oxygen had it not been August that she yeah. decided to make uh, mm. to publish that letter but um, you know I, I do think she's entitled to her opinion and I think some of the some of the commentary over the last week in terms of calling for the president to come out and explain away his wife's comments you know for me we're just a bit yeah. uh, come on that, that, that's this idea that you're basically denying the woman her own agency or her right as a citizen to speak her mind on certain stuff and maybe this the concern is that you would use what are considered to be I suppose state organs like the presidency website to, to be able to furnish that but yeah. anyone's entitled to write a letter to the newspaper if they want to yeah exactly you. and I think the letter itself like well, I was actually off at the time that a lot of the controversy was kicking off so when I looked at the letter I was a bit surprised at the length of it you know but given mm. the, the amount of discussion and the in-depth mm. reading between the lines I felt that people were sort of making it was quite a, a concise small letter it wasn't mm. very detailed by any means and perhaps maybe that was the downfall of it is that it perhaps she, she didn't had, go into a bit more clarification she, um, but she just had that one line in there saying condemning the illegal war of Russia yeah or, or, or that, that one sentence which, which was construed by some people as putting Putin mm. and, and Zelensky on yeah. an equal plane. I think probably in hindsight she'll yeah. look back and say like well I could have done a little bit of a better job there yeah. and changed this but then my record in the past shows yes. what I, yeah. and a lot of people as well that, that know them would suggest that, that maybe the president didn't even know about this that, that it was very much done off her own back yeah. and, well, and sent in as, as she's entitled to yeah, no, so she, yeah, no, well, she, she's her own woman and, and she, look, she, as I said, she has her agency and that she, her husband is, is not her keeper. She's entitled to... Yeah, there's to, a lot of talk now about having likes. some sort of we need to sit down now and discuss the formal position of the First Lady so things like this don't happen you, you, again. You don't think we do? No. I, I, I don't... I think it, it, maybe it's unfortunate that it would happen in the midst of some controversy but I think it'd be no harm if we had a, a bit of a yeah, chat what, about What do you set out? Do you set out a guideline of what a person can and cannot discuss? Do you know? Or like, do you know what, US, where it we... It just happened over time. I, I think there's no constitutional position. No, 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 of course not. It's no, but but, but, but it a, is it is a funded office, so that there yeah. is like there's an allowance that's passed mm. by Congress, which which funds sure, the yeah, office yeah. of the first lady, mm. and it's there, and they have their own staff, and it, therefore that's kind of a yeah. an implicit acknowledgement. But as by the founding Congress. fathers viewed the presidency, it yeah. wasn't like it just kind of developed over time. Yeah. And perhaps that'll just happen here as well. well they probably yeah. uh, d- didn't envisage uh, women ever being involved really in, in high probably American not. office. I, I suspect. <laughs> um, the that is the the findings about Sabina Piggins are only one aspect of that opinion poll, which is conducted by uh, Ireland Thinks for today's. Um, Sunday Independent and one of the, the there's a general theme uh, across that today Philip about this being um, the winter of our discontent uh, and mm. this uh, Jody Corcoran in his introductory paragraph says we're in the f- we're in the lull before the winter storm the evenings are shortening towards summer's end overhead cloud never quite burnt away this year it was a heavy summer pregnant with anxieties for what lies ahead and the only good news since our last opinion poll in a month dominated by climate war and the cost of living came last week what we might call the rebirth of former Taoiseach Brian Cowan now I, I suspect now although it was great to see uh, Brian Cowan you know be able to up it about and be able to give an interview um, I suspect it didn't quite lift the public mood the way that Jody Corcoran is suggesting but either way the, the opinion poll today by Ireland Things does portray 
a country which is quite anxious. Well, about maybe what's the people of Offaly, where both Jody and and Brian are from, <laughs> oh, were, were, okay. were perhaps, right. perhaps lifted in that maybe, way. Maybe that explains. Uh, yeah, um, it is interesting to see the cost of living is is gone down by five percent. But I presume that's yes. a, a lot to do with the the nice weather, mm. uh, and we're not seeing the well, bigger bills. Yes, coming in. well, I shouldn't say that the, the cost of living itself isn't down five percent. No, but rather when people not. are asked, uh, when people are asked to name their their top two mm. concerns for the country, sixty three percent of people now include the cost of living among that, which is down five points on the previous month but it's still evidently far and away the biggest concern that, that people have yeah certainly um, 63% like you say followed by housing which, which doesn't go away the, the climate change is up slightly by 4% to four, mm. to, by 4 points to 14% which is probably centres around the debate we've just recently had um, with the Green Party mm. and, and the climate so that would have brought some awareness to that but at the same time it, it's not like a, the huge political agenda on the, the system I'm always struck by the, the next finding there that 10%, 1 in 10 people are con- still concerned about government corruption and incompetence. Now, well, I mean, uh, incompetence you can you can yeah. certainly understand because people would say, well, if this government isn't competent enough to figure out what mm. economic levers it can pull to try and soften the cost of living. But yeah, government corruption, if, if yeah. it's phrased that way, would strike you as being a, a somewhat, look, maybe we're inhabitants of the, the Leinster yeah. House bubble and we don't mm. spot it coming, but that I'm, I'm quite surprised that that would be such a prevalent concern exactly, for people. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, far ahead of like things about, like education, childcare, yeah. uh, elder care, things the, like... The rural-urban divide. Yeah, Brexit, things that COVID-19. are really, you would consider yeah, to be big issues for people. 3% yeah. there uh, are concerned about childcare, which jumped out at me massively and probably will be a bit worrying to the government coming up to the next budget because mm. that's one of their big calling cards. If there is any government corruption out there, please get in contact <laughs> with me. Uh, do, do let actually, on that note, actually, because I might not get a chance to mention it otherwise, uh, Justine McCarthy, uh, is departed in the Sunday Times. She's one of the, the many people who's uh, leaving that stable as part of an internal restructuring and reorganisation. And her column today uh, is an excellent column which is worth picking up. Justine has always been a columnist worth reading but today's column does make the very important point that reporters and journalists people in our game can only ever report what sources are prepared to bring to them. That there, you, Sometimes you get that criticism of you know why aren't you reporting on X, Y or Z and the truth is that you know, you are unaware of that problem until somebody actually comes to you and shines a light on it. So maybe, maybe just on that that somewhat tongue in cheek note, it is worth remembering that you know if there is government yeah, corruption, you think that the state uh, that the media aren't pointing towards mm. it. Maybe reach out to to a journalist and let us know what's there, what's actually worth reporting. Always uh, happy to hear from you. Yeah, Christine, anything else to jump out from you from that poll? Yeah, um, I think it's kind of interesting that um, you know there's a question there: Should Michael Martin resign as leader of Fianna Fáil when he's no longer Tánaiste? And forty three percent say yes. So that's speaks to obviously mm. this this wider debate as we saw some big players there in the party coming out saying that um, I think it was uh, Charlie McConnell Norma Foley yeah. and Niall Collins saying you know all this talk about the leadership of, of Micheál Martin is just a big soap opera and you know mm. uh, the backbenchers need to, to get back into place um, you know I, I think that's going to be definitely ramping up we have the the Fianna Fáil thinking, I think, in September, which will be followed by the budget, mm. and then we then have the, by the Fianna Fáil Fianna Ardesh. Ardesh. Yeah. So, you know, they'd want to hit uh, hit a good <laughs> budget, I think, because if he's going into the Ardesh yeah. um, that weekend, he'll certainly be hearing the views of his party. Well, which is on that note, actually, and we'll, we'll go to a break after this, Philip. But I, I was kind of struck, like, of course, you wouldn't ever be struck because, of course, cost of living is the single biggest concern for a lot of people. And, and uh, I was having a conversation with the taxi driver the other night. Isn't it mad that we now think that relief is on the way because petrol or diesel now? only costs only 
between 195 and 2 euro a litre and that we consider that to be some sort of respite. But that so much of the conversation around the budget in the last couple of weeks has been through the lens of how are we going to fund all these climate change uh, mitigation measures mm-hmm. and with the, the long-awaited accord on ceiling emissions and, and the likes that we were like, well, how are we going to pay for all this stuff or what sort of grants are we going to need to incentivise people to move? And actually, you'd almost have forgotten in, in the public discourse in the last couple of weeks that it's still supposed to be a cost of living budget and that that's really what's going to be the main concern about it all. The, the cost of living stuff kind of ties in though a little bit with the, the climate change agenda too because the, when we're trying to push people away from needing to use petrol in, in one sin, instance so you're providing alternatives more sustain, sustainable alternatives which should be cheaper um, th- th- that kind of, kind of balances it off and that's some of the argument that's sometimes thrown out there. But look, the, the good news this week was the exchequer return. So there's plenty of money mm. for them to, to spend on cost of living yeah. measures if they if they choose to give us a good old whack of that money. Yeah, it, well, if, if they choose to, I'm not sure that everyone in the Department of Finance would consider mm. it to be such good news because they might be under, under further pressure to do stuff that they maybe don't think is is uh, fully possible. Uh, a couple of texts about Sabina Higgins, which is a topic that we'll refer to, uh, return to um, a little later in the programme. Uh, Sabina Coyne and her poisonous husband says one texter, have continually been given free reign by uniformly leftist media to spew nakedly leftist junk. A President Casey, not so. Well, here's the thing. that We don't have a President Casey because President Higgins won the election and got in there on the first count in a fairly contested field. So you, you might sort of say, well, yeah, he's 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 a, a you know a lefty pinko or whatever. But he, he got the mandate. And his housing comments um, went down particularly well. well, well. This no. is what someone else says. What is it with Irish media? It is so obvious that the controversy around Sabina was payback for a peaked government being called out on the housing disaster. Do you think that ultimately that is it, that a lot of the, the political pushback is government backbenchers with an axe to grind over the housing comments? Certainly that uh, speech that the president gave did not go down well at all um, within government parties. And I do think it's interesting that, you know, significant number of senators came out of the woodwork to, mm. to hit out mm. at, the, at the present you know, but particularly it, Fianna Fáil senators, given that it's that party which holds the housing brief. Yeah, yeah, and like if we cast our minds back to when he made that speech, speech, I think there was a lot of people cross party, which you know what he was saying, mm. you know, couldn't be disagreed with. Like we've had ten years of this, and yeah. it still don't. I thought it was noteworthy that the Malcolm Burns' comments, which were fairly damning, that they were issued by the Fianna Fáil press office. Mm-hmm which is still the party that the Taoiseach is president of. Yeah. So, like, it's one thing to just go on air or to do a tweet, but like, yeah. if your press office is putting it yeah, out, it's it a kind sort of speaks to volumes. Utilise the machinery of it, yeah. Uh, Christina Finn, who is political correspondent of the journal.ie, and Philip Ryan, who's the group political editor at Independent Newspapers, with me going over what's in today's papers. Um, Philip, the front page story uh, of the Sunday Independent, your own title today, um, we're going to approach it, obviously, with a certain amount of sensitivity because we don't mean for this to cast aspersions about uh, the, the issues that people with gender dysmorphia face or some of the treatment that they undergo but there are some concerns being raised uh, in today's front page piece by at least one senior doctor in the National Gender Service who warned that it would fa- that the HSE was going to face a wave of patients who would regret uh, medical gender reassignments due to the poor level of care being given to Irish children uh, by the British based clinic that mm. was overseeing their medical treatment Yeah been. this is this is a, an interview Mark Tig has done with uh, Dr Paul Morn who's a a, cons- a consultant psych- psychiatrist with the, the National Gender Service and himself and uh, Dr Donald O'Shea they, they, they have said now that they've contacted or did contact the HSE back in 2019 raising concerns about this uh, process that the HSE do where they've uh, Essentially, um, children here who, who have issues with their gender, um, believe they're going through gender dysmorphia, etc. They, they they would have been treated by Tavistock, which is the the the, the UK's um, mm. gender assignment 
uh, clinic, which has been come under a lot of controversy recently, mostly because it's um, it, its use of or, or, and pushing of gender blocking hormone treatments for for children mm. who who are in in some cases some of the children who seem to have gone over there. And this is not saying that they they've actually got the gender blocking um, medicine or hormone treatments mm. is as it, it, young as ten. Um, so like he, his problem was with this service before it actually blew up into a massive controversy, mm. saying that they shouldn't have been using this and he questioned um, what oversight was and there, there's, a, there's a paragraph here because Tavistock operated it seemed out of Crumlin Hospital in Dublin Yeah uh, and, I, was, and I was checking about this this morning mm-hmm. actually to see whether that was still in operation and the last see, I, the last mention of it on the Leinster House records I can find were some TDs asking earlier this year when that service in Crumlin was going to resume because it had stopped mm-hmm. in the course of Covid and had never reopened and the question marks then were well when is this service going to resume mm-hmm. for children in Ireland who are suffering from gender dysmorphia yeah. and what sort of services might be available to them but hasn't been operating obviously since since 2020 and and they they had this meeting uh, Dr Morn and Dr O'Shea with Crumlin Hospital because they were hoping and that they could move the the treatment of children into the national gender service mm-hmm. uh, rather than have this Tavistock uh, centre use um, treating Irish patients and they asked that like how did it end up here how did um, what oversight what cl- uh, clinical terms were, were signed off to, to have this uh, to give this centre such status in Ireland and according to themselves Crumlin management said they had no knowledge about the service who approved it <laughs> and they had no idea overall how it got there Yeah, well, what's, what's which striking, seems unusual given the controversy around it now in yeah, England Yeah what, what's striking about it all is that um, Dr Moore and, and, and I'm quoting here from, from Mark Tyke's piece in, in today's Sunday Independent on page 6 he says that he believes the Tavistock Centre in Crumlin was set up without any proper clinical governance or a service level agreement. So instead of Tavistock supervising care given by the local CAMS team, that's the Child and Adolescent Medical Health Services, Dr. Moran said that the satellite service, which operated in Crumlin for six years, had no proper supervision of its work. Now, irrespective of whether this was a service which was operating in line with best medical standards or, or whether there were clients being referred to this centre uh, who were maybe being medicated in a way that later turned out to be inappropriate for their needs, um, I would have serious concerns, Christine, in general about the idea of there being a service set up basically as a wing or attached to a certain hospital and for there to be no real integration with any kind of national health service here and for it to basically be operating as a kind of a freelance centre which is being referred to with no supervision or no sort of governance as to what its outcomes were. Well, exactly. That's, um, I think, what Philip was speaking to. That that paragraph, particularly in, in that piece in the Sunday Independent, jumped out at me in terms of the management, again, not not seeming to have any sort of background data or or information or meetings or minutes of meetings about how this all came about. And as um, I think um, Dr. Paul Moore, Moore and the consultant psychiatrist who's in Lachlanstown, they treat the over 16s. He, he was saying that they he was seeing um, the patients that had gone to Tavistock come to him at a later stage. And this is where sort of flags are being raised for him because his service which he said is a multidisciplinary service mm. uh, has you know speech and language therapy mental health experts uh, endocrinologists um, a, a very you know well established team to deal with you know the multi range of issues he was seeing patients come back from Tavistock and seeing I suppose the lack of care that he felt that they were getting mm. um, I think he spoke about them just heading off to the to the UK being treated and somewhat um, left 
you know, to their own devices without any sort of follow up care. And, you know, he was seeing the after effects of that. Yeah. And that's exactly why he was he was raising those red flags. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it, for me, it just speaks of another case of like really bad outsourcing from the HSE mm. in terms of the healthcare that we're providing to people as the um, LGBTQ groups have spoken to the Sunday Independent saying, you know, that this is the lack of services is having a devastating impact on trans and non-binary youth and their families and that gender affirming care for trans young people must be a priority. But again, we're seeing even as we're talking about this, uh, the closure of the Tavistock Clinic, um, the article refers that the HSE is possibly now considering linking up with a children's clinic in Belgium. So Mm. again, another outsourcing of what yeah. You know, should be a properly well sourced, proper oversight, proper medical data and records kept on the patients yeah. to ensure that they're getting the best care. Yeah, and then of course not not to say that there is anything wrong in principle with outsourcing or having relationships with, with other um medical practitioners elsewhere in the world, as long as there's good governance or that it's properly integrated into the Irish system so that if a patient is referred to them that there's proper adequate follow up and that there is that multidisciplinary approach because uh, for people who aren't familiar with this story and, and this is not to um to raise any concern or to feel like people with with gender dysmorphia or the trans community is being debated in this but the concern about Tavistock is that often it would in a rush to judgment just prescribe uh, gender blocking or or gender hormones or gender blocking medications um, hormone blocking medications excuse me and that they wouldn't always necessarily um, examine whether there were other more appropriate uh, interventions for these people rather than going straight for for that course of action Um, and you may look at I, I only hope that that whatever service does does amount is something which is better integrated I mean it's certainly one thing which which all of this highlights to me is that the team that that Paul Moore and and his colleagues are running that the fact that it is so multidisciplinary that they do engage in speech and language and that they do examine all the other aspects of mm-hmm. a person's life seems to be a much more rounded and much more appropriate mm-hmm. way of dealing with people who are in very vulnerable situations this rather than thing, immediately yeah. rushing to a single course of treatment. Yeah, I, th- I think it's very important that just in this debate, which can be very toxic at times, that when when someone like Paul Moore, who's, who's a psychiatrist, he's working in the, the National Gender Service, He's not a, you know, a comedy writer. He's not, he hasn't written a book about wizards. He's not some left-wing TD trying to d- d- latch on to the latest uh, discontent and demonstration they can they can attach themselves to. He is an expert in this field. And when people in in, in Dr. Moran's position are speaking, I think I think it's appropriate that people listen. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll keep an eye on that and see exactly what sort of relationship. So certainly this will, will definitely highlight any relationship that the HSE strikes up with um another provider of those sorts of services and maybe it might just spark some questions as to whether it is appropriate to uh, continually send that sort of uh, that sort of client abroad given that they do have uh, such complex uh, challenges and that they do need maybe some slightly more hands-on care in, in their, their care. Um, we mentioned the front page of the Business Post and how it would be someone happy reading for a lot of people and, and I mentioned that the Business Post to its credit has been plugging away at this story for quite some time um, but the idea that in a, a modern uh, liberal Western European democracy in the year of our Lord 2022 Christina that we'd be looking at the idea of having rolling blackouts because we literally cannot provide enough energy to, to run our houses and to, to keep the lights on in our businesses it's yeah. it's uh, it seems dystopian like it, it seems like the sort of thing that you pick up in a bad fiction novel that you wouldn't actually be thinking about in a properly well-run, well-resourced society. Yeah, I think there's definitely seems to be a huge amount of uncertainty about what we're facing as we come into autumn, winter this year. You know, it's something that we've been, um, politicians, Eamon Ryan, the, the Taoiseach Taunish have been asked, I think, as far back as six or seven months ago about, you know, will there be blackouts? You know, will people need to, um, you know, charge up their phones and all that in case something happens? And, 
you know, I, I think I'm not sure anyone really knows the level um, of uncertainty that or, or what we could be facing into. You know, mm. I, I think if we are going down the road of, of, of blackouts and, you know, the lack of energy supply, there's going to be big debates, as we've already seen, about the data centre usage, yeah. um, big business that are, are draining the grid. Um, and I think, you know, if we start to move into, you know, we've seen those those contingency plans, those rolling contingency plans that government have had since the outbreak um, of war between Ukraine and Russia um, in terms of rationing. Now, the Taoiseach says there's no plans for that as of now. Um, you know, but if we're starting to get into d- to debates or discussions even about, you know, limiting someone's fuel for their car or mm. or electricity to houses. You know, we need to have a bigger look here about who's actually using the most energy. Yeah, uh, and maybe that, that reference to data centres is something that the Business Post is getting at because it says that it understands the CRU, which is the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities, now, will shortly publish a consultation on these proposed peak demand control measures, which industry will be able to engage with. The measures will include a block tariff which would basically charge more to large users to use the grid at peak demand in the hope that they would therefore then use reduce their demand at peak times and maybe use their own on-site emergency power supply. So if you are the operator mm-hmm. of a data centre, for example, you've got some sort of redundancy on-site and you can use that instead of, of mm-hmm. tapping off the national grid. A, stress, a system stress tariff is also being devised for when the grid enters into a high-state alert. Last year, the system experienced a high number of amber alerts where the gap between power supply and demand tightened to a concerning degree at certain times. Philip, it's like it's like, I, I don't really know what the solution is. I mean, because if the we've been hearing it from the Business Post for the last couple of months about how they have been putting out tenders and they were looking to approve the, the purchase of emergency generators. Mm. So they've clearly made some effort to try and, and see this coming and to ward it off in the past. But if they can't do that, then I don't really know what the solution is other than hoping that data centre operators and the likes of big industrial users have some sort of backup system that they can use to spare the rest of us. Well, I think that they, the decision has been made anyway that you, you can't cut off the data centres. We rely on them too much as a, uh, a source of revenue, as our, our whole backbone as this small open economy that, that attracts tech companies. It, it's just part of the deal if you want to keep them in. But, but so it's also, they, I mean, that, that's how we use the internet. If you have an email account, if you want to it's, it's living well. in some, yeah, yeah. some cloud data centre somewhere. Yeah, This is the thing, like, and, and we're just... The, the, the one thing we were always told about why data centres come here, apart from our fantastic tax regime was uh, the weather as well yeah. that it, it, it's not too hot they don't overheat yeah. they don't actually have to use the type of um, energy they would yeah. if they were over in Silicon Valley or in yeah. California or wherever so that that is one of the attractions here but I think there is a recognition now and you can see it there with the CRU and I think the Taoiseach has spoken about this as well that they are going to have to um, the, the data centres will have to find some sort of way of making a contribution to the, the energy grid themselves whether it yeah. be setting up wind farms around the place covering themselves in solar panels they'll just have to have a backup system themselves mm. or like it's been suggested there they're just going to get hit with bigger tariffs than other people uh, A couple of very thoughtful and sensitive texts mm. about uh, the HSE's use of the Tavistock Clinic uh, David Mead says that the, the clinical and mental health needs of children must always come before ideology young trans people need appropriate treatment pathways that give each individual the best option for their long term wellness being that's from Dave somebody else says that the suggestion that the, the Crumlin gender dysmorphia service should be taken over within Ireland is failing to see the reality of healthcare in Ireland there are currently no consultant psychiatrists at all in Temple Street never mind anyone specialised enough to manage paediatric gender dysmorphia one man with an agenda's opinion says this texter doesn't take away the benefits that many children gain from expert overseas care which is a reasonable point but hopefully it would then result in not having a clinic which would basically operate as a sole trader or not having um, any kind of a governance system uh, with the HSE for there to be appropriate follow-up.
Gavin Riley with you till one o'clock this lunchtime on News Talk. 53106 for your text on the record. NT is our hashtag on Twitter. And actually, thank you to the texter who's gotten in touch at 53106 who's pointed out that I, I've been uh, mistakenly using the phrase gender dysphoria, uh, or rather gender dysmorphia, when actually the phrase that I should be using is gender dysphoria, which is the sense of unease that a person might have because of a mismatch between their own gender identity uh, and their biological or born sex. So thank you for, for correcting my language on that. Do keep your text coming. 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. Philip Ryan and Christina Finn uh, still with me in studio leafing through today's papers um, Christina I'm particularly taken by page two of the business post because mm-hmm. um, obviously we know that housing is in seriously short supply and that it needs to be a well engineered situation to try and make sure that we have enough supply for the people who are living in this country but the idea that water and electricity shortages are threatening the delivery of thousands of new homes which presumably are, are all pre-planned for which all have planning permission which all have builders that are ready to, to turn the sod on them otherwise that's a pretty disconcerting headline for anyone who's getting caught by the housing crisis at the moment. Yeah, it just seems to be another hurdle to to get over just to get a few gaffes built in this country. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting piece uh, on page two of the Sunday Business Post saying that um, memos uh, um, went to the Department of Housing and Dublin City Council uh, basically set out that developers have de- detailed issues such as like Irish Water um, who are claiming that there will be a large delay in a number of homes Um based on issues to do with um, energy capacity constraints and it remains unclear when ESB can build the required infrastructure to supply the power for the new homes. So again, it kind of speaks to, I think, a lot of the issues that have come up over the, the housing over the last number of years where people, I think you know we're in a rush now to build as many houses as we can perhaps at the time when we didn't have as much money there's always been the argument that we should have been putting in the infrastructure yeah um you know government should have been actually mm. funding that property so we could hit the ground running yeah. but this seems to be just another um issue we're going to have to overcome over the next couple of months yeah the this, the piece by, by Killian Woods today on page two it's it's specifically talking about that there's certain sites that are identified including apparently most of the apartments being developed on the former glass bottle site uh, by the consortium led by Johnny Ronan um, that the concern is that they can't be delivered because the water infrastructure isn't there uh, memos sent to the Department of Housing and the City Council obtained by the paper say that the required water pumping station would not be constructed by Irish Water for at least six years and that would stall the development of uh, 2,293 homes. I mean, obviously, look, we don't want to be building like thousands and thousands of apartments if there isn't the water infrastructure mm. to properly house them. But there is there is at least one uh, publicly disclosed housing development in southwest Dublin, uh, which was built and constructed and has people living in it, which still isn't fully connected to Irish Water's sewerage mm. system. And Irish Water are sending in tankers every couple of weeks to empty tanks on site basically because they're not fully connected to any municipal waste system so although we shouldn't really be in a situation where nothing is, isn't is connected it's not in other cases Philip an insurmountable burden If there's a way of doing it and getting the homes built we should certainly look at that and that should be the way forward if, if Irish Water has the facilities to, to keep things ticking over I suppose per se um, until they can fully connect a site to the to the water system that, that should be the case look I can understand why there's concerns it, it, all this stuff anything to do with construction infrastructure housing whatever we need to build it just it's all happening at once and the problem I think is there is, is who's going to who's there to do it all we have unemployment yeah. down to one of the lowest time we've ever had it. Mm. And we have all this infrastructure to build, all these homes to build, all these mm. new schools, new hospitals. Yeah. And I just don't really have the people to do it. But it is concerning that, like, how long have we been talking about the glass bottle site? 
Do you mm. know what I mean? And now they've suddenly mm. realised that they don't have a pumping station that can actually facilitate the, the houses yeah. they want to build on it, which is a bit alarming. Uh, just on energy, Kieran and Cork said the idea that in the 21st century a green government in Ireland is incapable of capitalising on the potential renewable gold mine that we live in, uh, I presume that means with the, the access to um, seawater that we have and offshore wind turbines, uh, is absurdity, uh, says Kieran mm. and Cork. Um, particularly striking about all this, about the, this report in the Business Post, one Dublin-focused housing developer says that more than 2,000 new homes in its pipeline were at risk due to the lack of certainty around electricity and water connections. The head of another development company in Dublin who spoke on condition of anonymity said their firm also had at least 2,000 homes in its Dublin pipeline which could now be delayed due to utility connection issues. This is standard across Dublin, they said. We can't get assurances from Irish Water and ESB that they'll have water and electricity for us over multiple phases of a development. Like... <laughs> I, I, like, I don't know what the solution is because Philip like as you say if we don't have the staff to be able to operate these utilities to extend mm-hmm. them out then obviously if we don't have the staff we don't have the staff um, but at the same time I, I've, I've seen it written before that developers basically can't often can't get planning permission or be able to serve commencement notice uh, until the site is already connected to utilities mm-hmm. and you'd think Christina that maybe there's there's a slightly more intelligent way of lining all these things up that you don't need running water before you start work on a site that maybe you should be able to do some work and then have the water mains connected somewhere along the route instead of instead of needing to have all the utility connections in place before you even dig a hole in the ground. Yeah, well, I think um, there used to be kind of a lot of controversy back because of the, the Celtic Tiger bills and stuff like that. Um, you know, over the lack of perhaps planning that things were, you know, just you know, developed and built and it was an afterthought of some of the services um, that should have gone along with it. And there was special funding, I think, put in place by the government in order to get a lot of this infrastructure built. Yeah. Um, perhaps the before SOD's yeah, return. Yeah. But um, y- y- I think it is probably just best practice to have these things um, laid yeah. in the ground beforehand. And as people have been saying, you know, when we didn't have money, that's when the government should have been pumping in those infrastructure um, facilities so that when we actually do have money now to build houses, the things can just be done fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, as well with the energy supply system, that, that article says that the memo stated that uh, there was concern that ESB didn't have the capacity as well to support phase one residential development and that a new substation is likely to be required in order to support phase two of the development. Um you know, again, a lot of this conversation about this specific um, development, which 3,800 apartments very much needed um, within mm. Dublin city centre. It just seems a bit farcical now that we're discussing that actually they might not have enough energy to turn on their lights or, you know, water to flush their toilets. Yeah, pretty remarkable stuff. Um, across the spread uh, of that on the Business Post uh, is some interesting detail, Philip, about um, the two retired Irish judges who recently resigned from their positions on this Dubai court and Frank Clark, the former Chief Justice, and Peter Kelly, the former president of the High Court. Um, Catherine Sands has got some interesting details to how much money they're giving up by, by relinquishing those roles so quickly after taking them on. Yes, certainly. This is about Frank Clark, the former Chief Justice, and Peter Kelly, the former president of the High Court, who uh, quit their roles. They were supposed to take up positions on what is called the Dubai International uh, Financial Centre Courts. Uh, so that would be ruling and mediating on, on various decisions and rulings over there and commercial interests. And they turned that down despite being in line to earn around €4,000 a day and that would have been mostly for doing remote work so just turning on their Zooms and, and listening to hearings now like, look that, that can be small change it, it kind of points out as well here as a, some um, 
the rate for high retired judges on high value commercial mediation work in Dublin can be as much as between 12,000 and 15,000 a day. Sorry, 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 sorry. So, so the, the, the daily rate for a, a retired Retir- judge, which, which, which presumes that there is a market for retired judges doing mm. that, but I didn't realise that there was, for a retired judge to work in uh, high value commercial mediation. Mm. 12,000 to 15,000 15, a, a day. day. Yeah, you would certainly be trying to stretch the case into a couple of days if you were... <laughs> yeah. If you're like, yeah, you'd be looking at your billable hours, yeah. Um, in a non-commercial mediation, mm. says this piece, fees of 5,000 to 7,500 are more common. That's some daily rate, Christina. You must be approaching that now, right? God, I'm like, where do I sign up to yeah. become one of these uh, lawyers yeah. or, or judges? How long will it take for me to get to that position? Well, but that it does, does it beg a question then if they could do similar mediation work in Dublin and not have to worry about I mean granted but you might have to go into a, an office in Dublin rather than being able to do it for, uh, over Zoom for Dubai Yeah. but that if you could earn up to 15,000 a day to utilise your skills as mediation then then actually why, why would you take on yeah, a Dubai Yeah because it's interesting the the report actually says you know immediately people might think if you're you know you're in working for Dubai court that perhaps it says that you know no income tax in Dubai but a person resident in Ireland would be required to pay tax on their worldwide income so yeah. even if they are working there for the international Dubai court um, you know they still by the looks of this would still be liable to pay, pay tax so um, I think those high rates are as well because if you you're far better off doing mediation if you're involved in some commercial dispute than ending up in the actual courts where you're probably oh yeah going yeah. to spend the, like the, the, the legal bills of going, going in front of the serving yeah. judge yeah. 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 So yeah. in juxtaposition to you know the cost of living pole and all the rest yeah. to yeah. have this sort of uh, land on people's tables this morning mm. is and the know. source in the piece says the work they were going to do in this in Dubai was well paid but certainly not as lucrative as what they could do. Which, which is just why I think that like would, would it be possible to juggle both I wonder that it would yeah, would Frank Clark have been able to juggle um, his work with the Law Reform Commission and the work that he might have been doing for these Dubai courts and some other private mediation work on the side which he all would have been receiving with in conjunction with his pension mm. as being a former retired Chief Justice which would have been a, a pretty penny too um, if you text to 53106 someone says Ireland won't meet our climate targets the reality is that any application by companies to develop renewable energy will be challenged by environmental groups in the High Court via expensive and endless judicial reviews well I suppose maybe they could go to a retired uh, judge to, to get some uh, less expensive mediation on that um, housing uh, Peter in Temple Oak says why if the government are so concerned about people being able to get in the property ladder are so many apartment developments being built for rental only one being allowed in Terra Nure no one can buy any of them so it's crazy stuff says Peter and someone else says they haven't put their name to this but it's a very good point Philip um, lack of services make a zoned land tax and vacant site levy a bit premature don't they that you, you'd be levying people for having a vacant site but if there's no staff to connect it to utilities to develop anything What's on it What's the, point the yeah. What's the point of doing it? Um, remarkable. So I just, I still can't quite get over the uh, the amount that you get as a retired judge. Uh, one other story before we do wrap up. This is on page nine of, of the Business Post, uh, Christine. And this, this, I suppose, was touched upon um, by recent reporting about how, how many people that were now residing in, in City West, which was intended to be a home for Ukrainians, uh, were actually not coming from Ukraine at all. Um, that it seems that the target for ending direct provision by 2024, which was in the lifetime of this government, is going to be maybe quietly but perhaps not so quietly stood down very soon. Yeah, so the um, Business Post there is reporting that the Department of Children has been under severe pressure um, basically to source uh, accommodation obviously for the Ukrainian refugees that are arriving. Obviously the direct provision um, target there to, to, to cease that service. Um, like It was a big a big thing for I think that landed sort of on Radhika Gorman's table and 
you know, it's been talked about for, for many, many years and he kind of has the responsibility now to try and wind that down. The target was 2024, but it seems that given the pressure that they're under, um, it says here 44,000 Ukrainian refugees in Ireland, um, an additional 7,000. Uh, we've seen a massive jump in terms of people seeking it international protection mm. from other countries um, and now 2,000 is the number of people that the new state-run reception centres will now cater for. It just seems that the the system is creaking a bit and yeah. I think trying to run what they see is a sort of wind down of the yeah. of the system while, while you're expanding it. While, yeah. while more people are arriving perhaps uh, just isn't feasible for them. I'm not sure whether that's going to really wash with in terms of the Greens. They, you know, that's been one of their big calling cards. I think, yeah. in this government, that they they'd see this done. Um, I so think it's not, not unreasonable though that they had to push the date out. A but that, bit, that circumstances that, have changed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Think, like if you're going, to, you're talking an extra forty. Because we have like the City West Centre was meant to be for the Ukrainian yeah. refugees, and that was actually now accommodating um, people from those other yeah, countries right, who are arriving. Seventy percent of people who are in in City West, which they say was intended for Ukraine, is not being used by by Ukrainian yeah. residents. So just suggested the sheer volume of people that are coming in. Um, Philip, so Philip, you, you reckon, final word on this, you reckon that people would be understanding if the Greens had to go back to the public in two years' time and say, sorry yeah. lads, we couldn't do it? Well, I think it's entirely reasonable if they're, if they're dealing with this influx of people. For God's sake, they've had to turn around and, and change our visa laws to prevent people coming here from some European countries, which, you know, if, if the British were to have done but that, I think we'd it, be... the point is, like, that human rights, um, you know, specialists and experts are saying now is that, you know, the the difference in treatment perhaps with, you know, people that are being left languishing in direct provision. If we're going to push this target out, we yeah. need to start looking at, you know, their rights and, and and putting them in a better position to actually get on with their life here in Ireland. Yeah, but as we mentioned, it's, uh, it's uh, new property is, is hard to come by. Uh, so uh, I think on, on that somewhat regretful note, uh, we'll leave it. Christina Finn, political correspondent with the journal.ie and Philip Ryan, group political editor at Independent Newspapers. Thank you very much. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. It all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.